Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to New Books in Finance, a channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Daniel Paris. My guest today is Professor Thomas Levinson. He is a professor of science writing at MIT and the author of the just-published Money for Nothing, and this book has a long subtitle, but it's worth listening to and reading, Money for Nothing, The Scientists, Fraudsters, and Corrupt Politicians Who Reinvented Money, Panicked the Nation, and Made the World Rich. It just came out from Random House. Tom, thank you so much for being on the show. It's a pleasure. So this this book is really at the intersection of a, a number of interesting topics. Uh, it covers really the origins of modern finance and is, I think, relevant to many of the debates that we've had in financial circles in the last decade. Uh, and I think you will agree with that. But it really also covers some really interesting moments in history when a lot of the math of modern finance was being worked out against the background of wars and kingdoms and uh, scientific breakthroughs, you really do a great job in highlighting that context of how science, math, and finance came together. How did you get onto this particular topic, uh, the, the development of modern financial thinking in the late 17th century? Well, I came to it through basically another project. I mean, sort of how things happen in my in my working life. Uh, because, uh, you know, I was doing a book that was uh, first about the scientific revolution. And of course, that meant that I had to think about Isaac Newton. And I found some things about Isaac Newton that surprised me. Um, so I chased them down. And what I found out was that he spent uh, as much or more time as head of the Royal Mint as he did ever as a professor at Cambridge University. So that was curious, and, and I, I went on to tell a story in an earlier book about Newton's role in tracking down early financial criminals, money criminals. And, you know, he particularly had to chase this one incredibly skilled and, and sort of dapper don 18th century style uh, counterfeiter. And what was that, 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 was, that was a story that happened really right at the end of the 17th century, actually 1696, 78, that kind of thing. And as I was doing the work on that, I, I came across just a stray mention that uh, Newton had lost his shirt in this thing called the South Sea Bubble and was really upset about it, you know, really just bitter even. Uh, and I said, that's really interesting. And that was beyond the scope of, of the project I was working on at the time. And I said, I'm just going to stick that in my hip pocket and, and come back to it. And eventually I did. And what was really striking about it is it wasn't a coincidence. It wasn't an accident that the person we think of as the avatar of reason and the, the sort of leading figure in the scientific revolution uh, was caught up in this, uh, you know, early foundational financial panic. Um, there was a lot of intersection, it turned out, much, much more than just the fact that this one older guy uh, got in over his head and lost his money. Um, and that led me into, you know, what became a, a several year project trying to track down not just what happened in the South Sea bubble, which has been well covered in various ways for a long time, but where the bubble came from. And by that, I mean, where did the ideas about 
finance and money and credit and national debt, all that sort of complex of things that we just sort of, that's in the air we breathe now, but was brand new then. Where did that come from? And it really involves a number of different, in many ways, indirect developments. You have Isaac Newton working on the shape of a curve and calculus and trying to figure out how to meaningfully calculate what's underneath the curve. You spend a lot of time on that. There's another figure you mentioned, William Petty, who, who does a almost a mercenary survey of Ireland involving the Irish and English conflict, but it ends up having a consequence for finance and putting a value on, on people and on land. And then Edmund Haley also working on statistics about uh, essentially life in a, in a German village that leads to notions of risk. So in each case, the person isn't directly interested in finance because finance really doesn't exist as we understand it at that time, but they contribute something to this notion of risk and the notion that money can take different forms. I I found that a fascinating series of events, almost coincidences that all come together in the late uh, late 17th century. Well, what's I think most, the thing that I love most about the book is what you just pointed out is, is that the scientific revolution is usually something we talk about in terms of the calculus and advances in physics and you know, figuring out gravity and the laws of motion and optics and all this kind of stuff that, that in particular, Newton was the, the triumphant hero of that story. Uh, but really, the scientific revolution is, you know, is something that happened in a place and a time, and it, it occurred on the street, and there were lots and lots of people involved in it. And they didn't make the same distinctions we do now. I mean, now you have a physicist, and they're a physicist, and you have a mathematician, and they're a mathematician. Back then, people turned their emerging tools of reason and empiricism and rigorous observation uh, onto any problem that came before them at the time. And so, you indeed, you have people, uh, you know, William Petty was one of the founders of the Royal Society. He believed that problems should be reduced to number, weight, and measure, right? Um, and that, that you know, uh, Edmund Halley was, is famous for having, you know, used Newton's uh, physics to figure out that the comet for which now called named after him, Halley's Comet uh, would return at a regular interval. That was a demonstration of the, of the triumph of the scientific revolution. And of course, Newton was involved all over the map and there were many, many others. But the critical thing to understand is that um, they applied those ideas, the, the sort of notion that uh, the way to understand experience, not just, you know, abstract things like what governs the shape of a curve, but how do you interpret that shape of the curve uh, as applied to ordinary experience? Well, you could figure out the flight of a cannonball, or you could notice that the calculus that Newton uh, invented in really beginning in the mid-1660s, that this was something that really was a way to study how things change over time. And of course, lots of things change over time. The value of a piece of property, the you know, the impact of the fact that there is risk that accumulates over time. If you, for example, buy into a share of a ship that sails back and forth across the ocean, there are all kinds of risks associated with that. Can you quantify that? Can you think about it rigorously? Well, yes, you can. Um, And so people, you know, not just, you know, the really famous names, but all kinds of people were taking these ideas and applying them to the entire range of human experience. You mentioned William Petty. He's a, he's a, I think, too little known figure. He came up with a concept of political arithmetic. And what that really was, was applying um, uh, 
attempts to abstract and quantify things to anything that the government might be interested in, how much a piece of you know land under their control could produce, what the productivity of individual people were, how you could, you know, what, what the value of improving or, you know, building something or using certain kinds of devices or tools. All these things were things that could be quantified and used to measure the strength of the nation and make plans going forward. It's probably worth mentioning that there is a dark background to all of this. For instance, William Petty's work occurs as a result of a, a war and defeat uh, between uh, England and Ireland and Ireland uh, defeated. And it's kind of a, a brutal overlordship, but it requires math. And that's that's the sad truth that, that the advancement of math, political arithmetic, as it were, comes behind a bunch of soldiers. Absolutely. I mean, the thing about I mean, as we know very well now, um, the tools are the tools uh, and they're sort of the moral or ethical issue with any application of tools depends on the application and the people, you know, doing the work. So in William Petty's case, uh, you know. I don't think people people know about the Great Irish uh, Famine of the mid nineteenth century. I don't think people are as familiar with the, the just the horrific mid seventeenth century for Ireland. It was just you know there's on the on the order of one third population loss, famine, disease, and just the consequences of the brutal resolution to the uh, the Cromwellian uh, conquest or reconquest of Ireland, which involved displacing you know, enormous numbers of Irish Catholics away from land that were, was then given to uh, English soldiers who fought to, to reconquer Ireland and to so-called adventurers, money, you know, money people, people who loaned the money to, to Cromwell and Parliament to pay for the expedition to Ireland. So those people got their share. And what William Petty's job was to go in and do a, a survey. And that sounds very sort of ordinary and, and, and basic, but Two, two surveys had been attempted before Petty with his, uh, with his rigor came in and surveyed, and, and Petty did two things that were really important that are the, the absolute backbone of so much financial and economic life more generally now. First thing is he standardized the measurement. He got, you know, he had an essentially an assembly line to build chains and rods and the, all the measuring tools that a surveyor needs. And then he came up with a system to value different, you know, that's bog land, that's forest land, that's pasture, that's arable. There's this building, there's that building. He turned all of those into a symbol, you know, simple solvent, pounds, shilling, and pence. You know, this, you know, this kind of thing is worth that much. And so all of Ireland, instead of being this sort of varied texture, this landscape, this, you know, this house, this tradition, I walk down that lane to see my neighbor, all of Ireland instead becomes a catalog that can be rendered in numbers can be divided up based on the numbers, can be valued as such. The numbers can be weighted depending on the risk or effort or capital needed to, to exploit it, all that kind of thing. Once you turn this sort of like detailed texture of, of life in the sunshine or the rain into this kind of abstraction, pounds, shilling, and pence, uh, you have enormous power to manipulate its ownership, its use, its productivity, and the human cost that's imposed to get to all of those things. And it's almost an, an identical description you could do for Edmund Halley, pouring over what is, in, if, in theory, is just a, a, a tabulation of births and deaths and has no normative virtue on its own. But you take that and you can, if you analyze it enough, you can come up with life insurance. 
and <laughs> the value of human lives. And so, you know, it's taking raw number, and to some extent with Newton himself, natural philosophy, observing the world, but turning it into equations that can be used for other things. It all comes together seemingly in the late, late uh, 17th century. It does. And I mean, two things occur to me off that, off that question. One is with Newton is, gives you the classic example of the power of abstracting from experience, the way you can use mathematics to subsume whole widely diverging branches of the things that we look at in the world and realize that they operate under similar principles. These, you know, there's the story of Newton and the apple tree and the apple falling and, you know, the theory of gravity, uh, you know, emerging full blown in his head. That's false. What is true, however, is that possibly, I mean, he remembered the apple falling, but he told the story like 50 years after the event. So who knows? But um, the insight he got in that first summer is that the same processes, the same rules that govern why apples fall to, towards the center of the earth every time and what keeps the moon regularly in its orbit, that that had to be the same thing. You know, that insight said, okay, if I can figure out the mathematics of, of either one of those things, I have the mathematics that can describe all of them and not just the, you know, the fall of a cannonball, uh, the, you know, the, the motion of a, of a ball rolling down an inclined plane, the motion of a pendulum keeping time in a clock, the moon in its orbit, the stars in the heavens, all of those share this property that they are governed by these laws of motion and, uh, and the law of gravity. That was a huge insight to bring all that, you know, enormously diverse experience under one mathematical roof. That's this, in some senses, the essence of the scientific revolution. And it's that idea that was applied to finance starting really around the same time. People were starting to think about risk and probability and things like present value. How to, how to put a price on something that would deliver returns over time. What's the price for it in the here and now? People are thinking about that in terms of land mostly, but you know, presently they will, sorry, I didn't mean to make that pun, but in time, <laughs> apply it uh, to, to all kinds of things, more abstract things, more purely financial things than just agricultural property. So it's, it's often easy as a historian to uh, think in linear terms that one thing leads to another. I, I like the part uh, of your book that highlights that the Royal Society was a real grab bag of ideas. And while on one day they might be discussing what becomes very important for the next three centuries, the next day they might be discussing frog heads. And uh, you know, some of the, the outtakes of the Royal Society are quite interesting. It is now as you know, the, any, any uh, academic society, very serious, very sober and doesn't, right. uh, no folly. But the Royal Society at its beginning was mostly folly and uh, a little bit of luck. Uh, but you do, you do mention some of the folly episodes, and they're quite entertaining. I, I don't know if there are any that you want to rehash. The great Robert Boyle, one of the founders of, of chemistry and, and, and certainly one of the founders of the, of the sort of spirit and culture of the scientific revolution, presented in one of the very first uh, meetings of the, uh, of the Royal Society, uh, presented a report from a, an acquaintance of his about a two-headed calf born in, on some farm in England. Um, and, uh, there was speculation on whether, uh, transfusing blood from a fierce dog into a docile one or vice versa would impart the temperament of the angry or the calm dog to the other animal. And, you know, I mean, it's actually a, you know, that was a genuinely open question. What is it that makes, you know, makes, uh, animals or people, uh, do what they do, but, you know, Again, anything went, un, you know, an unusual stone unearthed, um, 
an, an astonishing, you know, a sight of a meteor shower, uh, strange animals, all this kind of things would show up. And so would very rigorous things. I mean, they, from the very beginning of the Royal Society, they hired, uh, you know, the great uh, polymathic Robert Hooke as the curator of experiments. And one of his jobs was to do some experiment uh, at, at regular intervals to, to both explore new ideas, but also to show the members at, at these regular meetings uh, sort of what it was to do science, what it was to do natural philosophy with the kind of rigor, the new enlightenment spirit that the, the key actors in those early days were trying to impart to their members and more broadly to, to you know, London educated society. So we have we have this environment. We do have the society. We do have moments of light. Things that end up being long lasting. I want to shift to really what the context is, and it's a universal context. And the context is war and financing war. Yeah. The wars almost don't matter. It's just suffice to say that England was in engaged in expensive for their standards wars through this entire period, late nineteenth, uh, late late nineteenth, late seventeenth, and early eighteenth century pretty much continuously, the occasional break, and that these wars created financing needs that were ever and ever greater. And to some extent, again, necessity, the mother of invention, the scientific developments, the mental developments uh, that are, are percolating meet their moment of need in financing uh, warfare, specifically, if we discuss this, there's just not enough English silver. Why wasn't there enough English silver? Well, there are two issues uh, that you've just raised. The English silver question is is fairly simple, and in, in some senses, it was you know solving that problem or attempting to solve that problem was Newton's first job as head of the mint. Uh, the problem was uh, uh, Britain, England, and then Britain. Uh, England became part of Britain in 1707 with the Acts of Union, just to sort of keep the, the the historical nitpicking straight. Um, but in England, uh, they had a silver currency, so the the, the fundamental metal, uh, you know, against which everything else was was uh, measured, was silver, and uh, they had a gold coinage that was essentially a, a store of value, uh, golden guineas and half guineas, um, uh, that uh, that were valued at a certain number of silver shillings per per unit per coin. And the problem was the value that British and English and British uh, coinage laws set for the exchange of silver into gold was different from that which obtained on the markets in Amsterdam and in and in Paris, most importantly. So the difference between a fixed exchange rate on one side of the, uh, the channel and different, maybe yep. fluctuating exchange rates on the other side. Right. So silver was... Uh, worth more in gold on the continent than it was in golden guineas in London, which, you know, you've got, this is a, a sophisticated finance audience. I don't need to fill in the blanks, but what that meant is that people just grabbed all the silver they had, um, uh, including legal full weight uh, English coins, uh, melted it down, shipped it across the channel, uh, used it to buy gold um, and would bring the gold back to London and exchange it for silver coinage at the set rate in England. Perpetual motion machine, this lovely arbitrage uh, opportunity. And what that meant was that by, you know, this, this had first, this, this sort of uh, illicit trade in, in uh, English coins 
had, had really sort of picked up in the 1680s and it became acute in the 1690s uh, to the point that there was, by the mid-1690s, there was essentially no legal full weight silver currency in circulation. All you had were clipped or, or, um, or acid-rinsed coins that were shrunk to, you know, people would harvest silver that way, or counterfeits. Uh, and so in the mid, in 1695, uh, officials of the Treasury said, we have to do something about this. And they asked a number of, uh, of different sort of wise men, including Isaac Newton and the philosopher John Locke, uh, what they should do about it. And everybody said, you need to do a recoinage. You need to call in all the old coins and remit the entire coinage in ways that will be difficult to counterfeit and that will create a new, completely legal currency. Um, and, and that will solve the problem. Uh, there's only one problem with that is that some people said, including John Locke, you should remit them at the old standard. So they Which would, would not get rid of the existing problem of right. the, the differential yeah. in value. Yeah. Exactly. And others, including Newton, said, no, 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 no. You know, the, the issue is the arbitrage. You have to reduce, you have to essentially devalue English currency, reduce the, the amount of silver in a silver shilling until it more or less matches the value of silver on the continent. Um, and this was a fundamental disagreement. And uh, even though the logic was clear and the math was clear uh, and, you know, Newton was right within the context of his times, uh, the politics of the circumstance uh, dictated otherwise. And they did do the recoinage in 1696 to 1698. Uh, Newton was in charge of it. He did a brilliant job, but he did what he was told to do, which was recoin at, recoin at the old weight. And the problem you know, resumed almost immediately. But that does create the moment which Newton introduces, maybe inadvertently, that money as opinion. That is, the value of money is not fixed. There can be differences of opinion as to the value of this medium of exchange. And that's where you make a very nice transition. Eng the English government trying to finance its wars, mostly against France, sometimes against other powers, has English debt. And what happens over the next 20 years is that English debt as a very simple, almost mechanical obligation becomes completely transformed into basically what we would identify as the modern fixed income market and to some extent parallel to the modern equity markets. It is a moment of creation where war, thinking, necessity all, all come in and, and, and create before we get to the South Sea bubble, but just actually just create a market for securities that essentially lasts to this day in, in somewhat evolved form. That's right. I mean, the, the critical thing about this period is that the actual things that England and Britain and the other European powers were doing uh, really created a different society, different societies on all kinds of levels. And those societies had to figure out how to, how to you know, run their shops, as it were, uh, and different places tried different things. And it was Britain that really, um, by accident and through a great financial disaster, worked it out. One of the problems that all these, that Britain and France and Spain and Austria and the other major powers felt is that war had, had become steadily more expensive and became dramatically so over the last decade of the 17th and into the 18th century. More men, more material, you know, guns and artillery and all that are much more expensive sort of as a, as a part of national income than, uh, than edged weapons and arrows. You know, there's just the, the technology of large ocean going vessels carrying 
dozens and dozens of cannon. Those were the largest and most complicated, most expensive machines of their day, and they were very expensive. Uh, so you have this, and just the scale. More, you know, more people were in the navies. More people were fighting in the armies. Um, it costs money. You have to clothe them and feed them, and you know, try and fix them when they get injured, and all that kind of, you know, all the aspects of of projecting power at a distance uh, got radically more expensive uh, in this period. So much so that in the in the sort of start of the series of essentially world-spanning war that began in 1689 amongst the European powers and only ended in 1815, often called the long 18th century of conflict, um, that right at the start of this, 1689, 1690, 1691, uh, England found itself rapidly, hugely outpacing uh, the revenue the state had. Um, and, uh, and so they created something that was new. It's, it's, it's really kind of weird to think about it at this great remove, but the, the concept and the fact of a, a truly national debt has a birthday. Birthday is sometime in, I can't remember the exact day the Act of Parliament was passed, but it was in 1693 when Parliament authorized a million pound loan that, that it would guarantee to repay a loan to anybody who would subscribe to it, um, thus transferring the obligation from, in some senses, the person of the monarch you know, it was King Charles who owed money. Parliament, an elected body um, representing, albeit with a very limited franchise, but representing the entire nation and with the power to tax, which was always in conflict when it was kings versus parliament. Uh, all of a sudden, parliament could raise money in a way that the previous regime could not. And so it raised this million pound loan. It uh, the loan was filled very quickly, and all of a sudden the light bulb went off, and it was uh, you know Britain started borrowing uh, through this mechanism of make uh, of creating long term obligations that would pay a certain set interest rate, maybe have some other properties over time, um, and they would go back to the well again and again, which is great, and people at the time understood it as an incredible advance and, and an advantage England and then Britain had over its adversaries. Daniel Defoe wrote this amazing document about how wonderful the new British financial apparatus was, comparing it explicitly, using the same language, to Newton's clockwork universe. They'd figured out the machine to extract money from the future to pay for needs now that would, it was hoped, Create a state, cap you know, a state and an economy and a society capable of paying back those loans going forward. I think that's worth repeating that the the notion of of what modern finance is. Uh, uh, I'm sure you know Will Goldsmith has referred to it as a time machine, and uh, many others as have as well. Where you take an uh, a loan right now, and from one person's perspective, the issuer's perspective, it's money now. But for the lender's perspective, it's money in the future. And uh, that, that is uh, one of the many developments that occur here. I just want to highlight a few others that, you know, you mentioned and come out of this. And I think they, it, it's important for readers to understand all this is happening at the same time. You're turning English debt from a stream of income, uh, a single stream of income to one that could be priced and traded. So different, differing opinions could be broken up into small bits, multiple bond types. You have lottery tickets with very unusual features. The Bank of England has, uh, creates fractional banking, in effect, with a £1.2 million pound loan to the state. 
and so forth and so on, where the debt, the government's debt becomes small, manageable pieces that are that are traded, and that just creates a whole new culture, a whole new business, and a whole new way of viewing government government finances. Absolutely, and it it, it creates a a sort of public private partnership that really had never existed before. From the role of the moneyed companies and the moneyed people in London in shaping the ability of the state to do what it wanted or needed to do um, became. Uh, you know, came to the forefront in ways that really hadn't been the case before. You know, you know, grandees who were rich in land and could make loans or, you know, pay short-term taxes or what have you. But the idea that there was a whole marketplace in which uh, people were, were buying and selling financial paper, and that in itself would support the, uh, the ability of the government to buy, that was, that was brand new. But one of the things, I mean, really that my, what my book in some senses is about is for the first 30 years of this period, when they're developing new ideas about how to borrow from the 1690s to 1720, they try anything. They, as you mentioned, they tried lotteries where people would buy 10 pound tickets. There'd be a prize drawing. You could win a thousand pounds or whatever it was. Um, but the, the ticket would continue to pay interest to the holder after that fact. So it was interesting. There were, there were actually two markets. There were markets, you know, in the tickets before the drawing when people would value them for the interest rate plus the chance they could win one of the prizes. And then there was another market for the tickets after the drawing when people were just pricing the return on, you know, the interest rate on the, on the, the loan itself and some calculation for the risk that the, the uh, government would uh, default, which it did from time to time. But there were all kinds. There were um, straight-up bonds. There were short-term floating loans that were, were paid back. There were long-term, and this was the, the real killer, so-called irredeemables, usually issued at a point of crisis. You know, we, we're, we're about to fight a battle. We don't have enough money to pay our soldiers. Please lend us a million pounds right now. Uh, and those were, of course, always on, you know, relative or absolutely terrible terms, high interest rates, very long terms. And as the terms, as the name suggests, irredeemables, the government did not have the right to retire that debt early. They couldn't buy the debt back. Uh, redeemable loans could be paid off when there was money on hand. Irredeemables could not. And so you had this entire bestiary that was growing and growing and growing across these first 30 years. Uh, you know, the first war cost put the government seven million pounds in debt. By the time you got to the 720s, the debt had increased to over 40 million pounds, which in 17, 10, 15 money is a huge sum in contemporary, you know, our times. You make the point that, uh, which I, I'm not a military historian, so I, I don't know how this stands, but it's a fascinating point that England succeeded through much of these, con many of these conflicts in the 18th century, uh, in part because it could outfinance its rivals as opposed to just outfighting them. And that that was a contributing factor to its success. It could just raise more money more favorably than nations that had not come up with this mechanism. That's right. I mean, you have to remember, uh, you know, I think a lot of our impression of Britain is, you know, from the, the, you know, late 18th and 19th century British empire, when it ruled the world and was without doubt, you know, ruled much of the world and was without doubt the most powerful European nation, the most powerful Western nation uh, for almost all of that time. In the early 18th century, it was, a major power in the European landscape, but it was a, you know, it was significantly less populous than France. It was significantly less wealthy. It was a sort of windswept rainy island on the fringes of Europe. It was not obviously 
you know, the most likely to win in any international conflict. And particularly when, you know, say France and Spain combined against it, it was punching severely above its weight. I mean, it was really, you know, it's remarkable that that the British were able to uh, to muster up the power that they did. And a large, you know, clearly there's all, all, all kinds of, I mean, I hate monocausal history. You know, Britain worked out the bond market, therefore they won. That's not how it worked. But I think we can say that if they had not worked out the mechanisms of national finance that they did explicitly in that experimental period up to 1720 through the incredibly productive and useful disaster of the 1720, and then the ways they responded to that disaster for the next 30 years, that was when they built what ultimately came out of the bubble, which was a stable bond market with absolutely uniform securities to be bought and sold with a reliable time-tested um, uh, way to sort of judge the risk of government default and, and a, you know, a, a liquid, active, stable market that just made British borrowing much, much easier than France or Spain or anyone else could, could match. And did, little did they imagine negative interest rates two two hundred years or three hundred years oh later. But let's get to the to the main event, which is in seventeen twenty, seventeen nineteen, seventeen twenty. Coincidental with the emergence of the bond market, you do have joint stock companies which arise in the sixteen starting in the middle of the seventeenth century, but uh, picking up speed in the sixteen nineties and the seventeen hundred and seventeen tens. And they're um, some of them are legitimate, some of them are less than legitimate. Uh, but it is the notion of a limited liability enterprise. And so you have stock markets, Exchange Alley, emerging along with the bond markets. The stock market's a little bit more wild and woolly. But the two are going to intersect. And that's another incredibly innovative part where, you know, this, uh, before it becomes a bubble, I mean, it's a legitimate financing tool. One of the legitimate financing tools that the government of England figures out, or Great Britain, is to basically privatize the debt by uh, transforming it into shares of joint stock companies that investors thought might be more attractive than just holding plain government debt. That That's central to this because then it sets the stage for a bubble in said, uh, in said effort. But the notion itself of transferring debt from the government books into the capital of private companies is an astounding leap of logic. It, it really is. And it, it happened in a couple of stages. Uh, the Bank of England was organized and chartered as a joint stock company, and it certainly did a banking business. Um, you know, traditional people would deposit money and write checks on it, all this sort of stuff. Um, interestingly, checks, personal checks start to emerge in this period, not with the Bank of England, but before that with, with private smaller banks. Uh, but, you know, everything, you know, we think of we think we live in this wholly modern recent period. Now they were thinking about it three hundred years ago and doing stuff about it. We we are we are their heirs, not their not their uh, superseders. Uh, but anyways, so so the Bank of England was a joint stock company, and it's but it it also you know much of its work was was creating capital in the form of loans to the government that that uh, that became assets on its books and people would buy shares in the Bank of England uh, in part to get, you know, part ownership of, of that of that asset or those assets. But really, it was in the 17 first decade of the 1700s that people were both reaching for ways to solve this just growing problem of the this soup of different kinds of debt, stew of debt that the British government was creating. 
Um, and the South Sea Company was one of the first to do this in at its charter in 1711. Uh, and the people behind the South Sea Company had done something similar in a small scale. Tell that story, please. The Army Debentures for Sword Blade Company stock. That's a great story. It is. It, it's, it's, so uh, some of the people who would later become the, the principals and villains in the South Sea bubble uh, took over one of these early stock companies. So, so this company said, we're going to, this company was launched in the 1690s to make swords in the Spanish style. So swords with, you know, like good, good Span- Spanish steel and all that. And they went bankrupt in a couple, three years. And so all they had left was a name and crucially a charter from parliament to, to, to be organized in a, in a joint stock form. And these, uh, these guys took it over, uh, took over for the charter and set it up not to make swords, but to raise money from investors to buy um, army debentures, which were these um, floating short-term loans that were uh, seen as very, very high risk, very likely that the government wouldn't pay their interest due, uh, interest due on a regular basis, um, and uh, exchange those for titles to Irish land that had been condemned. Uh, that, that had been belonged to Catholics and had been uh, taken away from them uh, by one by one shenanigan or another, and this was a success. Um, the uh, the uh, insiders bought a lot of army debentures before the deal went public, so they were at their most uh, their, their their cheapest. They were seen as most risky. Um, on announcement of the deal, the prices went up. Presumably, they sold and cashed out. Um, the company used the capital they raised from these investors, um, trading their debentures into the company for shares, uh, and use those uh, use those debentures then to buy these Irish properties. Um, and unfortunately, it turned out that the legal title of the properties uh, was never cleared, and they couldn't actually take possession of most of them. And that deal collapsed in ruins for most investors, though again, not for the insiders. Um, so. Uh, the, but the principle the, had been proven that, uh, absolutely. and that's, that the was the last lasting legacy of that. The yeah, patient died, but the operation was clearly seen as a success. Mm-hmm. And so uh, several of the same people uh, in 1711, when there was a new uh, prime minister, a new chief minister, a new government, um, went in and said, we can help you deal with the debt. Uh, there's a South Sea company. Give us a monopoly of trade with the ports of Spanish America give us the right to trade in slaves. We'll capitalize this. You know, this will be this huge. I and mean, there was this genuine belief that this would be a hugely successful trading company along the lines of the East India Company, uh, and we'll capitalize it by um, cha- exchanging our stock for holdings of government debt. People who own a certain kind, you know, certain uh, example of an annuity. I think it was an annuity sale was the first thing that we went after. Can't put my finger on the detail right now, um, and uh, we'll use that capital to fund the buying the ships and sending it off and, and doing all that stuff. And the government said, "Yes, this is a great way to start rationalizing some of our debt. We'll pay you a lowered interest rate. We'll have the right to redeem, and the punters will get shares in this trading company that could be enormously lucrative, uh, and everybody will be happy." And it mostly worked. You know, I mean, the it turned out that. Uh, the trading side of the business was never terribly lucrative, uh, and it turns that is out the South Sea ventures themselves, because of a lot of diplomacy, and and there were times when they had to sit on their hands themselves. They were not able to 
trade or raid or do much of anything because of the the diplomatic environment after 1711, before 1719. It turns out that you can't trade with a nation you're at war with. And and, uh, uh, Britain and Spain sort of kept on sort of flaring into into conflict. So that hurt the company. And it turns out also trading is hard. You know, you, you don't just go from being a bunch of guys who are used to doing fancy forms of stock manipulation and become successful international mercantile, you know, experts. But from, from 1711 on, as the trading kind of receded, the financing business got better and better. And in that period from 1711 up until about, I, I don't know exactly where, I mean, it continues through 1720, but let's say before the bubble, 1719, the South Sea Company takes over more and more of the British debt. It's good for the British uh, government and the investors like what they get, yeah, otherwise it, they wouldn't do it. It turns out that just being this kind of um, financial clearinghouse for government debt is a kind of dull but perfectly sound business. And uh, investors, including people like uh, the great composer Handel and Newton and the bookseller Thomas Guy and others, um, and you know the Duchess of Marlborough, one of the richest women in England and, and a very canny investor, all these kinds of people, uh, bought this as a basically a safe, stable way to park their money. You know, in a, in a in a large portfolio, you want some good, stable, income-bearing uh, proper assets that will that'll just sort of keep the the wool from the door. And, and they are they are not speculative yet, in the sense that it's not a bubble yet, and there's a liquid market for it. So it's still it's a form of yeah. it's the government debt, but now it's in the South Sea shares. They're fine. There is a secondary yeah. market, and it's it, there's yeah. nothing wrong here yet. Right. And what you just what you just mentioned is the key to a lot of this is the fact that there was a secondary market for this debt. One of the problems with buying a piece, holding a piece of government debt directly is um, not only the government couldn't redeem it, you couldn't sell it. So you got your income for as long as, you know, as long as the, the, the term of the debt, uh, but you couldn't get your capital out. Let's say, you you know, the, the five or eight or 10 pounds a year on your 100 pound investment was very nice. But suppose you needed 100 quid right now. Could you, you not sell your debt to someone else, debt to debt, or, or was that not permissible? That was not permissible. There was no mechanism to transfer for, okay. for not for, for much of this stuff, not yeah. not for all of it. Um, you know, again, one of the things about this is is because this was a period of experiment, there were a huge number of specific different issues of debt that had different properties. So there's no blanket statement. It's not that they're all irredeemable or they're all, you know, this kind of thing. Uh, but broadly speaking, uh, the secondary market in government debt was very thin. But the secondary market in bank shares or South Sea shares, that was no problem. So one of the great virtues of this of this whole privatization transaction was to give people both the possibility of sharing in any kind of capital gains that might, might come if the stock went up, but also just the fact that they could get their money out if they needed to. Um, liquidity, liquidity, yep. liquidity, liquidity. So we've set the stage. It's modern finance. It's innovative. It uh, it works. And then it just this is the part that's you know human psychology and how it, you know one inch closer to the edge and then another inch closer to the edge and then another inch inch closer to the edge. Suddenly you're over the edge. Right. Do you want to describe how how that happened? And you know, there's no there's no great explanation for the madness that takes over in any of these bubbles, whether it's tulips or internet stocks or South Sea shares. It seems to repeat itself with the same madness and and uh, over and over again. But he, here's one of the first documented examples. 
Well, that's right. I mean, so at, in, in 1719, the South Sea Company does another one of these debt for equity swaps with a fair, for a million pounds or so of a particular uh, loan that was issued a few years before. And it works fine. And they say, we're going to, you know, it, it just it, like every previous bit of financial engineering that they had done this one, the entire debt, you know, almost all the debt gets subscribed, the shares go out, the price of South Sea stock doesn't change very much. Um, and there's this sort of expansion of the company and a reduction and, and, and for the, the government, a useful reduction of, it, of its interest rate and now gaining the right to redeem this debt if they if they have the, the revenue to do so. So. At the end of 1719, after this deal has worked, the, the leaders of the South Sea Company and a couple of their allies in the ministry get together and say, let's do this again, but let's do it for all the outstanding debt, this 40, approximately 40 million pounds. Um, the interest on which consumes more than half of the government revenue in peacetime, which means, you know, you add the next war, which is always right around the corner. And you have a completely untenable budget situation by this point. So it's really seen as a crisis. It really needs to be dealt with. It's been a, politi a dominant political issue for a long time now. And they decide we're just going to deal with it once and for all. And so in January, they announced the deal. And they say, basically, the South Sea Company will pay a bunch of money to the government for the right to accept all the outstanding debt uh, in exchange for shares in an increasingly large, you know, huge financial company that the South Sea Company would become. And, uh, and same, you know, same basic idea, the hunters would get uh, shares in a company that could itself grow and that would provide them liquidity. The government would get better terms on its debt and a reduced interest rate. And the South Sea Company would get this enormous expansion in its, in its, under, its capitalization and presumably its ability to, to function as, a, as an economic power. Let, let, just to clarify, punters, though, these are people who might not have been by our standard pumpers, but simply who owned government debt. They might have been extremely conservative, sober people, as it were. They didn't view themselves as speculators. They had lent the British government, uh, participated in a British government loan at some point. They were holding a, you know, five percent returning uh, uh, government paper. And whether they want to or not, this becomes shares in the South Sea Company. So they're pun they become punters. They weren't necessarily, they didn't necessarily start out as punters. Absolutely. I, I, I'm being a little cavalier or sort of, I guess I've spent too much time hanging out in the, in the minutiae of the craziness of the bubble. But yes, these were, I mean, one of the things about it was that the people who already held shares were, were, were the people who actually stood the game to, to gain the most. And the people who were going to trade their, their presumably secure, you know, safe, safe, boring investments into something much more, uh, much more fascinating, interesting, intriguing, and perhaps dangerous. Uh, and there was no reason that they should have any deep understanding of just how dangerous it could be. That was not what they bought into. You're right. Um, so the one, so there was some back and forth, the Bank of England bid on the deal, the price to the South Sea Company for the deal went up, the terms shifted slightly in the government's advantage. But in, a, in about a month, it was settled, the South Sea Company had won, they would, um, they would, uh, you know, launch the deal and and take in all take over basically the entire national debt. The one thing that the deal omitted, and a few people noted this at the time, but most did not, is that nowhere did they uh, did the, did the negotiations specify how much South Sea uh, stock a person trading debt would receive. 
that was at the discretion of the company. They could decide how much to offer based on either perhaps its par value of 100 pounds a share or whatever the market was paying for those shares at the time. And now, you know, for most of its history, the stock had traded somewhere in the near neighborhood of par. It was a little bit over 100 at the beginning of 17. So the assumption would have been that even though it was unstated, and you would never have a legal document today do that, but today, at that time, the assumption would have been that the transfer rate would have been plus or minus par. Maybe. I'm actually not sure about that. I mean, I, I think one of the things to remember is that even though an enormous amount of what we think of as you know modern trading uh, understanding was present at the time, it was still brand new. Um, and people really didn't have, in some senses, a settled vocabulary or mental apparatus of how all this stuff worked. But if, uh, if something said 100 pounds on it, uh, whether traded at 95 or 105, most people would have assumed, well, it must be worth 100 pounds. Yes. Yes. I, I mean, I'll, I'll concede that. But at the same time, I mean, there were uh, plenty of examples of shares shooting up and down. Um, people had a very elastic notion. And one of the things that comes out of the South Sea Bubble is they had just begin. One of the things the South Sea Bubble actually does is it forced people to think about, you know, how you actually value a share. How do you value a company? What should this share be worth based on this criterion or, or, or some other one? Um, that was not a settled or established, well understood discipline at that time. You mean Ben Graham had not Ben Graham had not written that up yet? Strangely enough, <laughs> what about what about the sell side brokerages? So, as you know, I posted one little element of your book onto social media. It is uh, Archibald Hutchinson, who yeah. full credit gets you know is saying hmm. What's this security worth? And puts in an enormous amount of time and effort for the time and writes it up in long stock reports. And he's, he's a rock star, I think, from my perspective. Can you he tell is. a little tale about him? Well, Archibald Hutchinson is somebody whom they called, a, a type of person whom they called a calculator back then. These are people who were, he was actually a member of the Royal Society, as it happened, and a member of parliament. But these are people who, who essentially had fallen in love with the religion of quantification. Find out, you know, figure out ways to turn things into numbers and then, and then, you know, sort of build an act, you know, they came up, they had the concept, even if they didn't have the term, a mathematical model and try and see what those numbers would mean. How would you interpret the, the raw numbers you had? Um, and he'd been thinking about the debt since the, the, the mid 17 teens. He was a crackpot in certain ways, but he was a very acute thinker. Um, and, and when he, uh, looked at the company and saw the price raising rising from 110 or 115 at the beginning of the year to 200 as the deal was being discussed and up close to 300 just before it launched and then shooting upwards from which was in April and then shooting upwards from there till it hit a thousand in June he kept saying what could justify what would be the rational exercise you would do to decide whether paying 100 or 300 or 500 or whatever uh, was reasonable for this particular company. Did he write on Tesla? I, I forget. I, I may have overlooked that. I, 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 don't we need him on Tesla? He, he, he would have looked. At, he would have looked somewhat askance at Tesla, and, I, and, and 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 might have had some things to say about SoftBank over the years as well. But you know, um, we didn't say that. We're not allowed to discuss current securities on this program. So if you heard that, please, everyone, just erase forget from it. memory. Rex never yeah, happened. Exactly. Anyway. Um, but but what he and you know the South Sea Company is a hard company to value because you could you could put a precise sort of 
number on the revenue it was going to get from the government debt it was going to hold, because that was set down in paper and the government said, we'll pay you this much. That was easy. But it was also a trading company. And you had to think about what the value of those trading operations going forward might, might be. And that's really very difficult to do because it was a new trading company. There had been in conditions before this and the other thing. How do you come up with anything even remotely reasonable uh, as a way to value that part of the business? And, and Hutchinson's genius was to say, I don't have to know that. All I have to know is in order for a stock to be worth 500 pounds, what's the amount of profit the company would have to make to give a just a bog standard 5% or so return each year to its shareholders on a, on, a, on, a, uh, uh, on a share price that high. And so he calculated not the number that they would make, but the number that they had to reach to justify that price. And then he said, okay, is that, and then he looked at this number and it was a really, really big number as the price of the shares went up. Uh, and he says, is that a reasonable profit that we can expect? We know what they're gonna get from the government. Uh, we know what they hold, what value they hold in their own shares that they have retained. Um, how much more will they have to make from everything else that they do in order to meet just this bog standard, the same return you can get on just buying a piece of land and, and hanging on to it? And uh, and he found out that basically there was never a price that the company sold at during the rise of the bubble that made sense from that point of view. It was you know there was no plausible way that a trading company doing the trade it could do could make anything remotely like the amount of money it would need to give the same standard somebody could the same standard of return that somebody could get just by doing something much safer much more boring so you have him pointing that out but he is uh it still goes from 100 pounds to a thousand daniel defoe has plenty to comment on it's a rich cultural history at this point we have the and the company itself is uh incented to issue stock in the way that most companies are, but very specifically as they're figuring this out, the company itself is incented for each next transition of government debt into stock to have it occur at a higher level because the bank itself or the company itself makes more money from that. And then, you know, I, I don't know if you have any particular insight into a thousand, a hundred to a thousand. It just happened and madness reigned for a while. Is there anything as you considered it against the context of other bubbles or the Banque Nationale across the, the channel in, in France at the same time that was distinctive about this bubble, or is it just human madness as it periodically appears? I think it's a mistake to call it madness. Um, human beings behave in broadly similar ways in the face of money manias uh, time after time after time. I mean, the, the 2008, you know, the, the, the rise of the two thousand the year 2000 and then the crash 2008 follow in really striking with striking precision follow the same pattern that the south sea bubble did you know almost 300 years earlier uh and there have been plenty of examples in between um you know i think there is uh i think and this may be unpopular with this audience but one of the things about innovations in finance is when they occur um, they can both be a valuable insight and something that has both uh, un, un immediately visible risks. And um, there's always a, a, a gap in information and in, in knowledge and acuity between those who are really masters of that particular new idea and everybody else involved, including a lot of the people buying and selling it from a professional point of view. 
Certainly saw that in 2007, 8. I mean, asset-backed securities are a great idea. And in some senses, they're actually being born in some ways uh, around this time, in the, you know, long ago. Uh, but they certainly, asset-backed securities as a major, you know, attribute of financial markets is something that's a, a, 20th, a later 20th century uh, innovation. And they can do all kinds of things. They make mortgages cheaper. They make it easier to buy a car, all these great things. Uh, but particularly as you, as you make them more and more abstract, more and more difficult to really see inside the machine, uh, they become hard for people to grasp and understand. And people, you know, uh, some people can exploit that asymmetry of information and some people are just trapped by it. Uh, and that happened, you know, we can look back now on the South Sea bubble. And in some ways, that's what's most useful about this incident is the, um, to our sophisticated 21st century eyes, with all the experience of financial innovation of the last 300 years, we can see pretty immediately and quickly where the structural flaws in the South Sea deal actually fell. But they couldn't. That was the first time it had ever happened. This was really, really new to them. And they reacted, they, the people buying and selling, uh, reacted in ways that we see people now reacting to much more complicated instruments that present the same challenge of novelty and opaqueness uh, that the South Sea Company did to uh, its buyers and sellers in 1720. And you do come to a conclusion in regard to that, which is that it was new then, it's not new now. Uh, and, and I may be misstating your conclusion or, or mischaracterize it, so correct me, but th there is an opportunity to blunt the sharp edges of financial innovation where necessary, basically through regulation, through better regulation. Since these patterns recur through through history, there's an opportunity to see how they happened and then make at least an effort to have uh, more regulatory oversight. Is that a, a fair summary? I, absolutely. I mean, Isaac Newton lost his shirt because he became in, he became just obsessed with the money he hadn't made. Isaac Newton was smart enough to get out of the bubble midway through with shares he'd bought over the previous decade. And he made a lot of money. He made in what in 21st century money would be some single digit number of millions. So plenty of cash. But after he sold, he saw the share double again from the price he sold at, and that hurt him. So he bought back in at the peak and he did so repeatedly and lost all the money he'd made and 20,000 pounds on top of it, which again is millions in, in, in uh, 21st century money. And I mean, none of us are smarter than Isaac Newton. None of us are more reasonable. None of us have more mathematical ability. He was, you know, top of the league tables. So if that's the case, if, if, the, if the person generally acknowledged in his own day to be the most rigorous intellect, you know, then alive in Europe, uh, can't beat the emotional reality of uh, markets in, in these, you know, unusual and extreme times, then we should simply take it as read, I think, that, that, that these are extremely perilous times now, and they're more perilous now than they were then. Because one of the things that was, is true now that wasn't true then is the finan we financialized our world much more thoroughly uh, than 1720 Britain was. You know, a lot of people lost a lot of money in 1720, but the economy didn't stop. The, you know, the, farm, the farming, the agriculture, the trade continued to, uh, to progress more or less without interruption. Nowadays, as we saw in 1720, that's not the case. We lose uh, we lose liquidity in the financial markets, and you know, world shuts down. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just so. So, 
given that human beings haven't changed in their reactions to money manias since the money manias started happening 300 years ago, and given that the consequences of getting that wrong are so much greater now than they were then, it seems to me vital to, to come up with um, rigorous, smart uh, regulatory responses to the, in particular, uh, the sort of the, 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 uh, the network risk, the, the fact that mm-hmm. a failure in one area can so radically uh, destroy so many people's lives very, very far. Systematically from. important financial institutions. The, the, the industry's answer to that is that it's whack-a-mole and that uh, heavy-handed regulation creates additional risk and unintended risks uh, you know, 10 years down the line and so forth when you block off something, you shift risk, say, from banks, from the great financial crisis to non-bank institutions. Now, you've, you haven't gotten rid of the risk. You've just shifted it from the visible world to the less visible world. And there are many other commentaries about uh, regulation, but your, 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 your point is well taken. I, absolutely. I mean, you know, regulation is hard to do well, um, but the under, I mean, there are, I mean, it seems to me, yes, I'm a, a historian. I'm a historian who looks first at science and then moves outward into the areas that science interacts with and shapes. So I am not, you know, I don't claim to be, and I'm certain, you know, no one would mistake me for being a, a, an expert on financial regulation. Uh, but one of the critical things that happened as a result of the South Sea bubble is that the British succeeded in making finance boring. You know, they created very simple set of financial instruments. They reduced the number of ways you could play with them. And yes, that had consequences. British financing of private industry lagged behind its potential for most of the 18th century and into the early 19th century. Whereas once the colonies in America became the United States and uh, escaped from that particular form of regulation, the funding of American, uh, you know, enterprise just rapidly, hugely, uh, swiftly outstripped on a per capita basis, anything that that Britain was doing for some time. So uh, just to to the point, because the readers might have missed that, that is in the aftermath of the bubble bursting in 1720, the British government did step in and sort of tamp down things and it became a quieter place for a longer period of time. And that in turn, was the context in which financing occurred for the colonies until the colonies went out on their own and developed their own innovative structures, which have been the topics of, of previous uh, episodes. Right. And, 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 and you know, there were, there were consequences to the American way of doing business. Uh, de Tocqueville in, in the 18, uh, around 1830, uh, I believe, observed that everybody was in business, but there was this, pro- you know, he observed the, the issue of network consequences and how if there was a banking failure, it rippled through local economies in the way that, that he saw as very dangerous, but also possibly just a characteristic of modern banking economies. And that's, you know, de Tocqueville years and years ago, and, and de Tocqueville was no finance wizard either. The, the economies uh, resolved their problem with paper money, basically, from very early on, uh, up until the eight, uh, post-Civil War period, uh, pretty much anyone could issue paper money as a medium of exchange. Because if you think the silver shortage or the crisis of small change, as you characterize it, in the 1690s was bad, in the early 19th century uh, in the United States, there just wasn't even remotely enough money to go to serve as a medium of exchange. So everyone just printed up their own. Joshua Greenberg has a, a very uh, a new, very good new book on, on that very topic. That's great. But you know, it precedes, I mean, you have the colonies... Uh, because there are no legal mints in North America after a, a short-lived Massachusetts one, uh, the colony started issuing uh, notes. 
uh, as early as well. I mean, in 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 Massachusetts in the in the late seventeenth century. Uh, but Ben Franklin is is among his many ridiculous accomplishments. He was one of the pioneers of of printing anti counterfeiting tricks into banknotes for Phil for Pennsylvania, the colony of Pennsylvania, uh, Pennsylvania, in around seventeen late seventeen twenty seventeen thirty that that period. We're we're going to get off topic. I think we we should should wrap it up <laughs> at this point. The book is, and, and you say at some point, you know, we, we've become standardized finance and becomes boring as boring as good, maybe. But the, the book title and the book is certainly not boring. It's Money for Nothing, The Scientists, Fraudsters, Corrupt Politicians Who Reinvented Money, Panicked the Nation, and Made the World Rich uh, by Thomas Levinson. Thank you, Tom, so much uh, for being on the show. It was great. Thank you.